have fellowship before you tonight, to dig into your word, and to learn not only more about you, but the spirit behind the word that you've given us to guide our lives and to direct us as we attempt to glorify you through our daily existence. We just pray that you bless us tonight and bring understanding to areas that may be confusing and allow us to receive all of your word with joy and continue on our week in your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, good evening, everyone. I hope everyone's doing all right and your week's going good. And tonight we're going to be going through Deuteronomy 15 and 16, two chapters, pretty big chunk of scripture, but I lumped them together because as we were talking about the last couple weeks, if we are using the Ten Commandments as a guide for navigating our way through the laws listed in Deuteronomy, the easiest connection we can make here is with the fourth commandment of keeping the Sabbath. Most of your Bibles will actually have the headline above chapter 15, the sabbatical year. And so it is the Sabbath that is the foundation for at least chapter 15, but I also believe in chapter 16, and providing us an understanding of what God is trying to tell the Israelites before they go into the promised land. And if you remember back in chapter 5, verse 12, because I know you got this whole book memorized, that's where God gives us, chapter 5 is where God basically restates the Ten Commandments through Moses. And in chapter 5, verse 12 is where we get the fourth commandment of keeping the Sabbath. And this is one of the only parts of the Bible, I guess you would say, or of Deuteronomy where he's recounting the Ten Commandments, where it doesn't follow the frame or the main line that we see when God gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus. If you remember in Exodus, when God gives the fourth commandment, he ties it directly to creation. He says, because I work seven days and rested, you shall work seven days and rest. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, he ties it specifically to the treatment of your servants, of your animals, of those in your household, and providing them rest. And so, at least as far as the context of Deuteronomy is concerned, there is a focus on justice when dealing with the fourth commandment. And actually, one of the people that caused me to think about the fourth commandment a little bit di differently. You guys may have heard of him. He's a political commentator. His name's Ben Shapiro. And he's not a Christian, but he's, a, uh, he's an Orthodox Jew. And he reads the scripture in the original language. And on Fridays, on part of his radio show, he goes into the Old Testament and kind of just gives a quick little commentary. And he was discussing with how the fourth commandment is not only there to provide rest for the people, but it's also there to limit the possible exploitation of certain types of people. So in other words, if you had a servant in your house and you were an unworthy master and you were someone that was somewhat of a slave driver, you could only push him for six days a week without being or without risking violating the laws of God. And so it wasn't only a command of rest for everyone, it was a form of protection for the lowest members of society. You could only work people, the lowest economic tier, so hard before you had to give them rest. And it was also a reminder for the people of Israel, and we'll see that in Deuteronomy chapter 5, is when we look at that commandment, it was a reminder for the people to take that time and remember their own time in slavery when they were worked without rest in a way to recognize how good God is. And so that is kind of the background moving into this chapter 15 with the sabbatical year. It was a form of 
providing a spirit of justice amongst the people of the land of Israel and allowing everyone, even the lowest members, to fully partake in the covenant that God had made with the people. And so starting in the first six verses, he kind of kicks it off with something a little bit easier for most people to get, unless you're someone who's lending out a lot of money, it's talking about canceling debts. So starting in verse one, he says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release, and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever is yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will, there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. And so this sabbatical year is described also in Leviticus and Exodus. But in those books, it's more focused on giving the land a rest. The poor is mentioned that they're able to come in and reap and farm on the land that's being given a rest. Here we see that the idea is expanded even more to giving a rest to debts or release is a better term because that's the term the Bible uses. You're releasing a debt. You can only hold it for seven years. No matter what is necessarily owed. And we can see that the Israelites had a real hard time moving forward with this. Because remember, everything we're reading in Deuteronomy, it was never accomplished in the land of Israel. As soon as we move into the next book after Joshua, when they take the, when they take the land, we see that the people cannot keep these things. And in fact, all through Scripture in Jeremiah and even in Ezekiel, we see one of the largest kind of disagreements that the Lord has with the people is that they keep going back after this seven-year release and trying to institute whatever debt or servitude they had established. And we'll get to servants in a minute here. But we'll see that their obedience to this is directly tied in verse 6 to the nation of Israel's political freedom. And so if they are able to keep this and obey this, then they won't have to worry about being indebted to other people as well. So the way that the powerful people will treat those lesser in society will directly reflect in the way the rest of the world will treat and deal with the Israelites. And so the debt and the oppression were symptoms of disobedience on a national scale, but I think we could also take that down on a personal scale. Because remember, Moses isn't just giving this to the leaders, or this isn't just the account of God giving this to Moses. This is being spoken to a community, but also being spoken individually to each person hearing these commands. And so I want you to kind of focus on that statement there and remember going further as we move into the sabbatical year. And what that means is that even if disobedience is the reason, or even if sin is the reason that this person is in debt, it is still to be forgiven in the same way God forgave them. And that it isn't their, it isn't their ability to keep these commandments that determines their political freedom, it is their ability to forgive that determines their political freedom as they land moving throughout the Canaanite area. But also notice how he kicks off here with the term brother and neighbor as talking about those who they are in debt with or those that are in debt to them, I guess you would say. There is no status distinction between the poor Israelite and the rich Israelite. They are seen equally 
as brother and neighbor, and especially as God speaking down to them, viewing them as their king, because remember, and we'll get into a more a little bit later, but that suzerain or the suzerain vassal treaty that we talked about a couple weeks ago that the book of Deuteronomy kind of outlines as an agreement between a subjected people and their ruler king, for him, each individual carries the same status. Even the poor person in debt is still the brother and the neighbor of the richest person in the land. And so he's removing that through the language here, Moses is almost removing that ability to look down on someone and see them as a different type or a different class or a different, or different person, I guess you would say. And you see true kind of equality or egalitarian society moving through here, and it isn't based on economy like so many modern people would want to push today with socialism or even some communism. My eyes, it's the same thing. But that being said, we see that it isn't based on economics. It's more based on their status as a child of God. And that status as a child of God automatically grants them the title of brother and neighbor to everyone that they're living amongst. So moving into the next portion, starting in verse 7, we got the people that owe money, but now we're just going to discuss people who are poor in general, the poor that are in the land. Remember, he says earlier in verse 4, there will be no poor among you, but it doesn't deny the fact that there is poor. So in verse 7, he goes on, if among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of the release is near, and your eye looks grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he will cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor." In your land. And so Moses is taking directly that there was an opportunity for the middle class and the upper middle class to look down on their poor neighbor. And right away he's saying, This is not the case. And he says he may even look at it when it comes time to give to him to provide for this poor neighbor that you may look grudgingly upon him. You may not be happy about the fact that you have to lend to this individual. And it may be because for a variety of reasons. Who knows why this person is poor? Earlier we kind of saw that, that, that being in debt or being poor might directly be tied to disobedience. But that is not an excuse to look down on this person. The reason why is because this is your neighbor, this is your brother, he is equal status with you among all the children of that king. And so, right off the bat, he's warning them, when it comes time to give, don't, don't hold a grudge. Don't do this out of hardness. And if you decide that you're able to judge what person gets money and what person doesn't, what person is able to be, money's a bad word because they didn't really deal with a lot of money back then, but what person gets provisions and what person doesn't, that that person can cry out to God and it'll actually be the person in the position of giving that'll be guilty of the sin. And so in this year of release, it is to be expected that you are going to give and not just give a minimum, but he says in verse 8, but you shall open your hand to him and lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And so there's a sense of provision that must be provided 
to a point of sustainability or at least to a point of using it to move forward, I guess you would say. And it shows that even though these individuals were maybe separate in economic class, they were all the king's people and that there was an obligation amongst the community to make sure all the king's people were never in a severe form of dire straits, at least in the year of release and what we're talking about here. And that term there where he says there will always be poor or there will never cease to be poor in the land kind of seems like it may contradict verse 4 where he says, but there will be no poor among you. And I don't know exactly how the two play off each other. I don't know if it's an actual kind of statement of, hey, disobedience obviously leads to a financial kind of subservience to someone. And so it was Moses' way of saying, these people will always be disobedient. Some of the commentaries I've read have actually said that. But it doesn't matter that even if it is connected to disobedience, there's no mention here of saying, give to the poor person if they do this. Give to the poor person if they do that. Give to the poor person if they prove to you that they're going to manage your money properly. Give to the poor person if they prove to you they've beaten this addiction. Give to the poor person if they prove to you that they are able to use this money in a way that you see fit. It just says give to the poor, and if you don't, then that person has a direct line to God, and you better be careful because God will see that as a sin, at least in Israel. So now moving into 15, 12, going through all the way through 18, we're going to see the consideration given for slavery. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. I already read that in verse 11. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you to this day. But if he says to you, I will not go out, of, out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an all, put it through his ear in the door, and he shall be your slave forever, and your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker he has served you six years, so the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Now when he tells him to take an awl and pin his ear to the door, I assume at some point you take the awl out so he can roam around freely. I don't know if you're just going to leave him kind of locked in there. But if you're going to be a literalist in the scripture, maybe there's just a bunch of slaves pinned the door in the land of Israel. But that being said, when we see the word slave, and as actually I was uh, showing some people a really cool video of the ESV translators kind of debating this word and whether or not they should translate it the word slave. Because in our American ears, especially our American ears, but in most Western ears, when we hear the word slave, we think of 1800s Southern slavery. People being enslaved based on the color of their skin, being treated very poorly, being treated very unfairly. And so the translators were worried about people bringing that historical kind of baggage into their reading of the scripture, especially verbs or in, in verses like this. And they were discussing on how the word slave is actually a legitimate term here because that's what they were. They were enslaved. They were, it was a heavy form of servitude because he even mentions down here in verse 17, or actually in verse 16, no, nope, in 18. 
It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free, for at half the cost of a hired worker. So there's a separation there between a hired servant and the person they're talking about here. But just remember, one of the key, one of the key things to bring to mind when you see the word slave in the Bible is that even in the New Testament, it was a form, it was more of an economic status than it was as a, a form of injustice, so to speak. We can see it was somewhat of an injustice because God called for them to be freed at, at the seventh year, but it was the capability of the poor person to sell themselves into slavery to gain an economic footing, and especially here we know it was temporary for six to seven years, six into the seventh year, and then be released with a different economic setting than what they went in with. And the best way to describe it is, and I'll be more than happy to describe it like this, it's like joining the military. And so you go in, you tell them, yeah, I'll give you four or six years. They say, we'll give you training and a paycheck, but when we give you that training and a paycheck, we're going to use you up, boy. And so you go in, you get your training, you get your paycheck. They send you all over the world to, to do whatever things they need you to do. And then at the end of that four or six years, you're released with that training, with that money you have, and a new kind of economic outlook on life. And so, for instance, a guy like me who kind of came up in a poor background was able to join the military, receive schooling and all this other stuff, and then get out with a family in a better position than when I went in. And so not exactly a parallel there, but it's a good comparison. Because while you're in the military, they tell you to go somewhere, you're going to go. They tell you to risk your life, you're going to risk your life. Things like that. And so you are in a form of servitude that you don't have any choice over your day-to-day -day life. And so, but they are, you're, it's a deal, it's a trade-off. You're saying, I will do this for you if you provide this for me, and then when they're released, they are in a better position. And so that's the kind of slavery we're talking about here. Um, if you want, it makes it read better, and some of the versions will do this, they'll translate it as servant. Um, to me, servant doesn't hit the mark of what we're actually talking about, but it's close enough. Bond servant is another term, and like uh, when they were mentioned about the ESV, on how they all kind of voted and agreed that, in, especially when in the book of Corinthians, when they're talking about slavery, if you notice you're reading the ESV, it'll say bond servant because they didn't want the receptor audience, us readers, to carry the baggage of slavery into that verse because it would actually change the meaning in our interpretation of it. But that's getting a little bit into the weeds. The whole point here is that slavery was a form of economic recovery, and at least in Israel, it was not to be a permanent position. And you can see how the slave is, is brought into consideration here, because if the free person who was poor was to have a circumstance in which they were to be given to and to help them get up out of their position, how much more so is the slave who is actually working for a master, proving his, his value to that master. So there would definitely be, it would almost be an injustice if a consideration for a slave wasn't made in these circumstances. But that being said, the Israelites, in dealing with the poor, or the slave, or the debtors, or the people in debt, I keep saying debtors, that's the wrong term, but the people in debt, they are constantly reminded and always being called back to remember their own time in slavery. There is always a constant link from God to remind the people of Israel, basically, I could have left you in this situation. This situation that you find these people in now, those that are either working for you as a servant, those that you're passing by as a street as a poor man, those that have, you have lended money to, I could have easily left you in that situation within the nation of Egypt, but instead, in the same way, I redeemed you and called you out and released you from that oppression, we are to likewise, as the children of God, always be looking for ways to release that oppression on other people as well.
But also, there was a consideration made that if the slave was working with a family and he became a part of that family and saw himself as an integral part of these people, he had a way to legally join them that would take guilt off the owner and then provide the servant the opportunity to stay with that family in the future. So now moving forward, we see how it kind of seems like it takes like a weird turn in verse 19 because we're talking about sacrificial animals. And it may seem like a weird place for it, but starting in verse 19, he says, All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd. You shall not shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God year by year at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat his blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. And so, like I said, we're, we're talking about the year of release. And we're talking about caring for members of society that are often seen as the lowest rung. And then all of a sudden, we get into sacrificial animals here. And it's a good transition into the next passage, which for us is chapter 16. But even if we didn't have the chapter breaks, we would see this as a good transition into moving from the rules and regulations on the sabbatical year into the three main sacrificial feasts that the Israelites had to go to, and sacrificial feast is wrong, but the three main feasts that the Israelites had to attend every year. But also, it is kind of a subtle way of God reminding the readers or the hearers, whichever way you're, you're putting it, of who the blessing actually belongs to. The firstborn of the flock was to be continually dedicated to the Lord in remembrance to the blessing that the Lord was providing the people throughout that year. And so the wealthy person was constantly reminded on the source of all of his wealth by the simple fact of having to take away that firstborn and set him aside. And he couldn't use him for work and they couldn't shear him. And those are two kind of key principles there in the fact that these animals were not to be used at all for any economic purpose. And so it was a way of reminding the Israelites that all this blessing and all the good year that you've had so far is thanks to the provision of the Lord. And so, yes, their hard work and their obedience allowed it to happen, but without the Lord's hand and provision guiding them, none of that would be there. And so these are to be set aside with no economic consideration and taken up to the feast and the Passover feast that we're getting ready to start into and spring into here in, in verse 16, or not verse, but in chapter 16. And so it was a reminder on, like I said previously, it was a continual reminder on the, of God being the source of all their income. And then also, just as a little side note here, my time in Christianity, I've seen a lot of people kind of struggle with like, what do I tithe? Do I tithe the net or do I tithe the, do I, do I accept the tax break on my tithes and all that? Well, if we were to go by this verse, no, you are not to receive any financial gain from your offering. Now, I'm not saying that from the pulpit as, how dare you? I'm just saying, here's a verse you can look at to help you make your decision. I don't know and I don't care because I don't even worry about those things. But if you are concerned about it and you're wanting to do a Bible study, here's a good example of God commanding the Israelites to set aside portions of their earnings and do it in such a way where there is no financial benefit coming in return for it. But that being said, moving on into chapter 16, we are going to get into the Passover sacrifice. And I believe this is a well-placed kind of portion here because talking about the sabbatical year leads us to remember the Sabbath as the commandment. And remember in Deuteronomy, the Sabbath is directly tied to the freeing of slaves 
and their Israelites' own freedom being pulled out of Egypt. And so it only makes sense that he also goes into and recounts the days. We have the day of the week that we practice the Sabbath. We have the year in which that Sabbath, the spirit of the Sabbath is where all the people kind of practice the, the form of release. And now we have the specific days and festivals in which the original reason for the Sabbath is remembered throughout the entire land. So starting in 16, going all the way to 8, we see them talk about the Passover feast. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God, you shall not do any work on it. And so here we see a drastic kind of change to the Passover ritual that the Israelites have been observing from their time that they left Egypt to now when they're on the, basically on the shore of the promised land. And the major change was that the Passover was, in the first Passover, if you remember, was celebrated as a family unit. The family went by themselves, prepared the Passover lamb, and then as a result, the tradition that came after that and the stipulations that came after that was a more family-focused event where these people could go into their own homes and practice the Passover feast. And now we see God saying, you come to that central place of worship, which isn't named yet, turns out to be Shiloh, and then later becomes Jerusalem. But you come to that central place of worship and from there, it will be a community celebration. Now, I don't think it ever turned into a full-on community celebration. I think the community celebration was one part of it. And then afterwards, when he says, like, you return to your tents, they go back and they have the more familial, intimate celebration of the Passover as a family. But he's changing the dynamic in which the way they're supposed to be celebrating this feast here. And the Passover is a seven-day continual reminder of what the Lord did for Israelites bringing them out of Egypt. And again, so just like we talked about the Sabbath being a weekly reminder and in the Sabbath year being an annual kind of reminder on the seventh year, they, they, they view that reminder and that freedom for the entire year in the same way basically to kick off their religious year they kicked it off with a reminder of what God provided and what God did for them, bringing them out of Egypt. And so that's why the firstborn of the flock is selected and sacrificed, to remember the miracle that God did to bring them out by the final plague of killing of the firstborn. We see that the uh, unleavened bread is a sign of leaving in haste. They didn't have time to basically put leaven into the bread and wait for the dough to rise properly. They were leaving in such a hasty form that the bread prepared for traveling was made without leaven. And even the no, basically the no leftover clause that we see in here is they didn't have time to prepare the meat in a way that would be suitable for traveling and, and being able to eat safely, safely on the road. So there was to be no leftovers. They weren't to leave any leftovers and be ready to move at least that was the symbolic meaning behind many of these rituals. And so, 
this was done for an entire week, and then the sacred assembly ended on the Sabbath. And so it ended on their day of rest. And so it ended on the day that A, Deuteronomy chapter 5 says, this is a reminder of what I freed you from in Egypt. But it also ended on a day of contemplation. They basically, even though it was over, if you remember the rules of the Sabbath, they couldn't get up and just walk home or return home. They still had the Sabbath laws. And so it was basically a day of contemplation for them to rest and remember the amazing things that the Lord has done, not only the past year, kicking off the new religious year, but also for them as a people, bringing them in to the promised land. Now, a little side note that you might find interesting, he talks about the month of Abib, and if you're any student on studying like uh, Jewish holidays and all that, you'll know that the Sabbath is held in the month of Nisan, is the common term that's provided for it. This is actually evidence for an early writing of the book of Deuteronomy. I think we talked about it last week or two weeks ago and how some people think that this is a post-exilic book or this book was written after, after the uh, Israelites came out of Babylon. But the month of Abib is actually a Canaanite term for the month of Nisan. They're the same month, it's just the Abib is the name that the Canaanites had for that month. And so the fact that they're using the Canaanite term in this book shows an early introduction to that culture that wasn't later changed to Nissan. And the reason why we call it, I'm saying Nissan like it's the vehicle, but you guys get it, I'm from Florida. But the reason why they changed it to Nissan is that they, uh, it was the Babylonian calendar that they adopted while they were in exile and came out of that. And so just a slight little kind of thing to show you there, the evidence of an early writing of Deuteronomy. But we have the Passover. The Passover is to be a reminder on an annual basis for the work that God originally did for the Israelites, bringing them out of Egypt and giving them their own land. And they are continually to remember where they were before and where they've been brought to now. But moving on to the Feast of Weeks, we may recognize this better as the day, or not the day, but the, yeah, the day of Pentecost. And we'll explain why here, but starting in verse 9, he says, You shall count seven weeks, begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. And so as you can see there, verse 11 is kind of lengthy, but that terminology we've seen before when when uh, Moses was describing the tithe and the tithe that was to be prepared and how it was to be prepared and how it was to be presented. And they were to bring it to the central location. The tithe of the central was to be brought to the central, central location and the Israelite and all the family members and everyone was to be included into that celebration or that sacrifice. Now the Feast of Weeks, it says, you shall count seven weeks, begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. That's kind of like an arbitrary date. And so the way it was explained when I was researching this was that since people may have started their, their harvest at different times, it was assumed when they left the Passover feast, Passover taking a spring, the Feast of Weeks is a spring festival, when people were done celebrating the Passover and they returned home, it was basically just assumed that at that point, that day after that Sabbath, would be the day that they started doing the work of the harvest or whatever, the springtime farm work. And so what they did is they basically took the last day of Passover, did seven Sabbaths after that, and then just added one day, which would be 50 days, which is where we get the term Pentecost from. And so Pentecost is just a term that means 50 days. 50 days after Passover, that's when the Feast of Weeks took place. And it was a celebration of spring where they were probably more than likely supposed to bring the tithe to offer before the Lord 
as they were celebrating, it was a time of celebration, the new things that God was doing in the land. And you can see why that day of Pentecost became such a crucial part of our Christian tradition because it was already a celebration or a feast that looked forward to the new things God was doing. And then they had the actual representation or the the physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit fall on the people during that time. And so as a result, Pentecost became almost just as valuable to the Christian as it was to Jew. At the time, it was the same people. The Jew was the Christian. But that being said, so you can see why Pentecost holds such great importance for the early Christians because they were already in the mindset and already in a celebratory mindset of seeing the new things that God was going to do and the Holy Spirit being released onto the community at that time, the Christian community, was an evidence of a spiritual kind of, it was a spiritual evidence for the physical celebration that the people had been doing for centuries before leading up to that point. And so, moving into the Feast of Booths, some people call it the Feast of Tabernacles. I never liked the term booths because I, can, I can't say it, booths. The THS at the end of it doesn't really do good for me. But anyways, Feast of Tents, that's what a booth was. It was just basically a, uh, a temporary dwelling. And starting in verse 13, we'll see the description of that. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. And so right here we see a brief description of the Feast of the Tabernacle or the Feast of Booze. And it was a fall festival, but it was a fall festival to remind the people, once again, their journey out of Egypt. Where the Passover was meant to kind of describe that initial release from Egypt, the Feast of Booze was a reminder of the time they spent wandering in the desert and they had to live out of tents or they had to live out of tabernacles. And so for those seven days, the people that would come and celebrate this feast would do it basically in a tent. And if you need a, uh, a point in the New Testament where you see this being celebrated, when the woman who was caught in adultery was thrown at Jesus' feet and they were going to stone her, it was right around the time of the Feast of the Tabernacle. And there's a lot of speculation that this celebration, especially later as it separated from the original event, the celebration was a, became a license for people to kind of basically get drunk, go back to their tent, and have a wild time. And so there's speculation that that's what, because often people say, well, how'd they know she was in adultery? Were they peeking in windows? Well, if it was during the Feast of Booze, things were a little bit more open, things were a little bit more visible, and so it'd be easier to catch someone in the act of adultery, especially if you were looking to find someone to throw under the bus. And so that gives possible background for a New Testament passage, but this was their reminder of the travel and the way God guided them through the wilderness into the promised land. And so in verse 16, he goes on to explain or to summarize the three feasts. He says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booze. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God he has given you. And so for this kind of little side note here, summary, it was common in suzerain suzerain vassal treaties for 
the subjected people, especially if they were like local landowners and all that, to journey there at least once a year to the king that they were subjected under and renew that covenant and renew basically that treaty with his king. And in fact, it wasn't unheard of or unprecedented for the king to require them to make multiple trips per year. The importance of the male making the trip, I wouldn't overstate in a sexist way. Remember, especially back then, there was a lot of considerations that the female had to go through as far as cleansing or cleanliness and unclean. And so it was mandatory for the male, but as we saw in Jesus' time, more than likely the whole family would make the trip if the whole family was ceremonially clean and capable. But it was important for the head of the family to make the trip and renew that covenant treaty as a vassal or as a subject of the king. And then starting in verse 18, we get into a more kind of generalized view of justice. Again, this is a transition portion moving into chapter 17, but it's also a summary portion that we can look at chapters 15 and 16. So in 18 he says, you shall appoint judges and officers over all your or in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eye of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant any tree as the Asherah, or as the Asherah, beside the altar of the Lord your God's that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. And so again, we're getting ready to move into specific implementation of justice throughout the land here. But chapters 15 and 16 are also a good reminder of the type or of the type of justice that the Lord expects us to weigh out. And it, and it basically results in this is that true worship of God results in justice. And so as a result, there is no partiality, whether poor or rich. Whatever brought them to a certain establishment, especially as Christians, especially as the children of God now in that familial, familial relationship where we literally call God Abba Father, or we literally call God Dad. I am able to call God Dad just as much as what we would view the lowliest, mem the lowliest member of society is able to call him dad as well. And so likewise, that person is our brother or our sister. That person is our neighbor. And it is our job to make sure we are providing an atmosphere in which they can partake fully in this new covenant that we are involved in in the same manner and the same attitude in which we can. And that just goes kind of without saying, when we look at documents, when we look at documents like our Constitution, and trust me, I'm not one of these guys that preaches the Constitution from the pulpit, but it, 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 one of the good things about it is that it starts off with the idea, the Bill of Rights starts off, and, and the Declaration of Independence starts off with the idea that because people are an image bearer of God, that automatically automatically affords each individual certain rights that are self-evident. And I use that language, and, and people's mind automatically go back to colonial America, but these were ideas that were presented all the way back in the New Testament here. And so now especially, and we can tie that back to Noah, and we can get into what an image bearer means and, and what rights that affords people, but especially now, children of the covenant, people that are in active covenant with God, and for us that is through Jesus Christ, are A, always to remember what that covenant brought us out of. The Israelites did that through the Passover and the, and the separate feasts. We do that through things like communion and through baptism. But we're also always, 
as a form of humility be a constant reminder, no matter what station or no matter what status we hold in a society, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are to remember that we weren't always a people of the promise. That God had to reach down and bring us out. And we are the same starting point and in the same status under the king as the lowliest member in our congregation. And we need to remember that and make sure we're giving proper consideration and provision to those members and so that they can fully enjoy the freedom of the covenant that we enjoy. And at least judging from this passage of scripture, true justice means we do that without a grudge. We do that without judgment. We do that without inventing our own system of validation or proof that they deserve this gift we're going to give them. And instead, we are to give it freely. And if we don't give it freely, that means they have a direct line to God to complain about us. And he's going to listen to it. But also, it is just a good reminder, like we said, or like I said a second ago, we are partakers of this covenant under the good king. We don't have to go to different feasts to be reminded continually. And that free gift that we were given as a seal of that covenant is the Holy Spirit. And that's given to each one of us equally. And so that we can trust that the Lord, not through prophets, not through special individuals, but through his Holy Spirit individually, can continually remind us of our status within that covenant and continually remind us of the freedom that we now possess in which we don't have to travel far distances or, or take large sacrifices to remind us, but we are able to daily remember the true sacrifice, which was Jesus Christ, and be thankful for the covenant that we are now introduced into. So that being said, I'm going to close us in prayer, and I think Doug's going to come up and lead us in one last worship song. Dear Jesus, we just thank you so much for your willingness to die on the cross. We thank you so much that you were raised again in a confirmation of the new covenant that you brought to us in which we all started from the same spot as a lowly sinner and now we are all elevated to the same relationship that bypasses any treaty that we could make with God, but instead puts us in a familial relationship with God the Father where we can literally call him dad and we can literally call each other brothers and sisters. I just pray that you remind us of this status and you remind us of how if the old covenants had obligations and requirements, how much more does the covenant that has introduced us into a family require, require us to take care of our brothers and sisters. I just pray that you bless our week. I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. And I just pray that you continually to bless us and that way we can show your blessings to others and prove to the world that you are the true God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.